Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Hello and welcome to Sacred Nine Podcast. A lot of exciting things are happening. We have just launched the Jewel Prize for African American Spirituals and are now accepting new spiritual arrangements from yet unpublished African-American composers. There is a $1,000 prize and a premiere in New Orleans in March of 2024. For guidelines and to learn how to donate to this initiative, please visit sacrednine.com jewel. For more information on giving, visit sacrednine.com giving. Here you can see our donor tiers. I have designated a Facebook group for you to comment on any podcast episode or even begin any discussion that you think would resonate with us. Facebook.com slash groups slash Sacred Nine Project. That's Sacred Numeral Nine Project. For Halloween month, I'm going to tackle a spooky topic today. My guest is Andrew Whitehead, who is a leading scholar doing empirical research on Christian nationalism. His books, projects, and links are in the show notes, but you can also visit sacrednine.com slash podguestnews and look for the October 2023 episode. I want to warn you that there are some archaic and offensive words that will be sung or recited in this episode from the Antebellum Tune Book, again featured in the podcast, William Walker's The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. To leave those words out would be literally to whitewash our forebears' complicity in a system that still echoes to us today. That collection will be making several appearances in this episode. The musical connective tissue is me singing bits of the wildly evangelical meditation, also not the best tune name for this, which is in the very first edition in 1835. It goes something like this. Today, if you will hear his voice, now is the time to make your choice. Say, will you to Mount Zion go? Say, will you have this Christ or no? In fact, this episode in many ways is a return to episode one, as I am now making sense of the problematic hymn text I spoke about then, thanks to Andrew's book, American Idolatry, which I can't recommend enough. Let's start by returning to three of those hymns. First is Missionary Hymn in the 1840 edition, hymn by English Anglican Bishop Reginald Haber, tune by noted American music director Lowell Mason. From Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strand, where Africa's sunny fountains roll down their golden sand. From many an ancient river, from many a palmy plain, they call us to deliver their land from error's chain. Apparently, They call us to deliver them from their error. Verse 2 mentions the heathen bowing down to wood and stone in direct violation of commandment 2, which is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Verse 3 sounds a lot like manifest destiny. Quote, Shall we, whose souls are lighted with wisdom from on high, shall we to men benighted the lamp of life 
deny. Salvation, O salvation, the joyful sound proclaim till earth's remotest nation has learned Messiah's name. Close quote. By the way, dictionary.com defines benighted, which is B-E-N-I-G-H-T-E-D, as in a state of pitiful or contemptible intellectual or moral ignorance, typically owing to a lack of opportunity. The second hymn is An Address for All, by all accounts an American hymn from the 1847 edition. The words were written by John Peck as well as anonymous authors. Music probably by William Walker. I sing a song which doth belong to all the human race Concerning death which steals the breath and blasts the comely face Come listen all unto my call which I do make today For you must die as well as I and pass from hence away Come listen all unto my call, which I do make today. For you must die as well as I, and pass from hence away. In the last verse, the author definitely places everyone into hierarchical categories, as Andrew talks about in his book, going way back before the dawn of the United States. Quote, the rich, the brave, the Negro slave, the wicked and the just. Close quote. Last is Missionary Song in the 1847 edition. The text was written by Welsh hymnist William Williams in 1772, the tune by S.B. Pond. Oh, the gloomy hills of darkness, look, my soul, be still and gaze. All the promises do travel with the glorious day of grace. Blessed Jubilee, blessed Jubilee, let thy glorious morning dawn. Interestingly, in verse 2, the original words were probably, quote, Let the dark benighted pagan, let the rude barbarian see. Close quote. There's that word benighted again. However, to hold sway over Native Americans and the enslaved, it was changed to our words here. Quote, let the Indian, let the Negro, let the rude barbarian see. Close quote. When I first examined these hymns and songs, I was confused. Because of all the talk of nations, it sounds patriotic. But it also sounds really racist. It sounds like the othering of people creating some sort of religious pride. The real problem, though, is that I know many people who would not be troubled at all upon a reading of these texts. Indeed, many people I know would find them wholly reasonable. It's like that, for a significant percentage of our population, this kind of worldview persists. This, I believe, subconscious feeling of superiority over non-Christians, particularly black and brown non-Christians. Much more on that later. Andrew Whitehead has helped me give a name to this phenomenon. It's called Christian nationalism. In his brand new podcast, American Idols, first episode, he points to the perceived debauchery of the 60s and 70s 
that's the 1960s and 70s, causing evangelical preachers to stir up a lot of fear about not being able to recognize their country anymore. I hold, and perhaps Andrew does too, that the people who created hymn collections like Southern Harmony, which were huge sellers in the antebellum South, were creating that American ideal that those pastors in the 60s and 70s felt so protective of more than a hundred years later. Say, will you have this Christ or no? I had the privilege of asking Andrew several questions, and I'd like to share his perspectives with you. But first, I'd like for him to introduce himself and briefly define Christian nationalism. My name is Andrew Whitehead, and I'm a professor of sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Uh, and I also help direct a large online religion data archive called the ARDA. You know, based on a number of years of research as a social scientist, um, the definition of Christian nationalism that I use is Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that desires for a very particular expression of Christianity to be fused with American civic life and to basically be the framework for not only the government, um, but everything that we do and, and how we see ourselves as a country and our identity. Um, and it's important to highlight the particular expression of Christianity because it isn't just about, you know, historic Christian beliefs, um, although those are a part of it. Um, the Christianity of Christian nationalism is a particular expression because it brings with it a number of other cultural beliefs and values. I, I like to think of it as this cultural baggage that gets added on. And, and with this cultural baggage, we essentially have these elements of a strong moral traditionalism and hierarchy in our, in, you know, that it desires in our nation, um, a comfort with authoritarian social control and the use of violence. Um, strong ethno-racial lines around who gets to identify as an American. So it's essentially a country that um, prioritizes white natural-born citizens. And then uh, uh, an element, too, of populist thinking, you know, that we uh, as a country or as a, as a people, this quote-unquote we, um, you know, are victimized by those in power. And, and it leads to conspiratorial thinking. Um, and so when we're talking about Christian nationalism and this desire to to see this particular expression of Christianity fused with American civic life, um, it's important to then to see that it, it's essentially all this cultural baggage that comes with it. And that's what makes the Christianity of Christian nationalism something that we can and I think should try to disentangle um, from other expressions of Christianity that are available to us. Based on his extensive research, he and his collaborator, Sam Perry, devised four categories regarding Christian nationalism. The two categories that are more linked with nationalism are ambassadors and accommodators. So when we survey uh, the American public, and so we use these large national surveys, um, the way that we measure Christian nationalism and, and try to figure out what it is um, is that we would ask uh, a handful of questions to each person, and they could either agree, strongly agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with each question. And these are questions like, the federal government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation or advocate for Christian values, or that the United States uh, plays a special role in God's plan for the world. Um, and so for each person, 
as they agree or strongly agree or disagree with one of these questions, um, we're able to essentially create a scale where we add together their scores on each question. So if they strongly agree, we give them a three and then on down the line. Um, and so what we can find is that if you strongly agree with each of those statements, um, you know, you would score high on the scale, maybe 15 or 20 points on the scale. If you strongly disagree and, and have a zero for every question, you're at the other end of the scale. And so what we found is that um, Americans are spread all along this spectrum of Christian nationalism. So it isn't an either-or proposition. Um, rather, Americans either strongly embrace or, you know, are more sympathetic to, or maybe they resist or reject Christian nationalism, they end up somewhere on this spectrum. And so ambassadors are those folks that, just to make it easier to talk about where folks fall on this spectrum, ambassadors are those people that are at the upper quarter of this scale. So these are the Americans that do strongly embrace this idea that a particular expression of Christianity should be privileged in the public sphere. Accommodators are those folks that score from the mean or the middle of the scale up to that top quarter where the ambassador uh, section starts. And accommodators are those Americans that are sympathetic to this idea that Christian nationalism should, or Christianity should be privileged. Um, and so, you know, they may not be the ones that are out there, you know, arguing for or pushing for, you know, particular laws to be passed that privilege Christianity. Um, but they are folks that are likely to just stay silent to, again, accommodate, you know, some of the desires that those who strongly embrace Christian nationalism, you know, want to see come to pass. And so when we look at the size of these groups, you know, we could talk more about that. But essentially, ambassadors are those Americans that really strongly embrace Christian nationalism. And then accommodators are Americans who are more or less sympathetic to it. Um, and open to it, um, but certainly are not actively opposing it in any way. But how does patriotism and nationalism intersect? Can I be proud of being American without thinking that my country can do no wrong? Can I be patriotic without thinking that God has blessed our country above all others? Here is a part of our conversation. On page 13, you said, God has no particular interest in the greatness of the United States. <laughs> right. And now a 15-year-old me yeah. would have burned your book. I'm like, this is, this, <laughs> you can't, you just can't say that. Yeah, you know? same here. I might have too at that age, yeah. You know, that's kind of a key part of, of recognizing, uh, you know, as a, as a Christian and as an American, where and how these identities intersect, but then also diverge. Right. And so, you know, as we continue on a faith journey, I think part of it is is wrestling with the fact that, um, you know, where we were born is by historical accident um, and then recognizing that there are Christians in, in many other countries, too. And so um, hopefully letting that kind of show us how Christianity can operate differently and how there can be different kind of cultural beliefs that get added onto it. And, and it's easy to recognize it in perhaps other countries. Um, but then, you know, being able to apply that to our own and, and seeing here, too, that, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for where I was born. Um, I think there's a lot of good things about being American. There are things that aren't as good. Um, but as I think about what it means to be Christian, I think there it's really important then to to be able to delineate between, you know, my status as a, as a citizen of a nation 
and then my status as a person who is a part of the kingdom of God and what those call me to and, and perhaps how they call me to different things at different moments. And related, isn't it a healthy thing to love one's country but also recognize its wrongs? One of the things that really struck me about your book, and in fact I almost yelled aloud when, when I read it, is this notion of can I be an American and criticize the United States? Mm. Because I, I was raised that you just never said any negative word about the United States or anything that's happening in it. Now, let me put a caveat on that. Others around me complained plenty, but it wasn't about the United States. Mm. It was about the things that are threatening the United States. Mm-hmm like the other or the who's taking over or, you know, it, but those are definitely things about the United States, but it's almost like they don't think about that as the country. That's, that's the enemy of the country that happens to be in the country. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good way to put it. And, and yeah, so it's this idea of, you know, if we, I mean, we can think about really any other type of relationship we're in and use that as kind of a as a metaphor here where, um, you know, in the relationship I have with my spouse, it isn't love if I'm not willing to, you know, respond or, or talk about things that may be difficult or, you know, where, you know, my spouse might go wrong in one sense. And that's rare. Um, it's, you know, if she loves me, she has to be willing to, to say hard things to me, too, where I go wrong. Um, and so I think in the same way as we're citizens of a country, I think whether we're Christian or not, being able to tell the truth about your country or, or its people or the way things operate, I think that is showing a truer patriotism, a truer, a truer care and love for your country than to you know try to only say that it has always been good and to ignore you know, mounds of evidence or the cries from those who are saying, hey, we're suffering over here. I think that, you know, that is what veers into Christian nationalism, this this need and desire for it to only be good and be great. Because again, we've so tightly intertwined our identities as Christians with, you know, the the goodness and identity of of uh, this country and its, and its history. Um, and so that I think is where yeah, telling the truth as Christians, we should be committed to that, no matter you know who it is or what it is, whether it's our nation or ourselves or our congregations. Um, I think that should be a key aspect of of how we live in the world uh, in a Christ-like way. I'm increasingly disillusioned when I hear calls to have religious depictions or activities in the public sphere, which was the entire theme of Sacred Nine Project New England Primer. By the way, that was performed last October for Halloween. If you want to check it out, visit sacrednine.com primer. About organized corporate prayer in schools, not private prayer, which anyone is free to do at any time, Christian nationalists are only talking about Christian prayer. They would absolutely oppose Muslim prayer, for instance. Strangely enough, I dare say Christian nationalists would also oppose Catholic prayer. No hail Marys allowed unless it's on the football field. Speaking of, 
One of the most egregious examples of the juxtaposition of public life and religion is when a high school coach has prayer at the 50-yard line. Is this not manipulative and coercive? Is that what Christ wants of us? I think in a lot of ways they view it as, well, this country was created for, quote-unquote, us, which means, again, this kind of particular expression of conservative Christianity. And so, you know, for other folks who this country wasn't created for, they just have to kind of put up with it, right? And and to me, I think that really does signal, as you point out, a lack of empathy. And I think that pulls us away from expressions of, of Christianity that are more Christ-like where, you know, we are willing to set aside um, our needs, our desires um, for others, um, rather than saying, well, we should be privileged and we're going to do this and you just have to put up with it. Um, and so I, I think that's an important point. And then, too, the other thing, too, is, is, you know, as you point out really well, like with the example of the football coach kneeling at the 50-yard line and then praying, um, if you're a student athlete who, uh, you know, isn't a Christian or, or of a minority religious faith, it would be really difficult to, to stand up to that because you wonder if that will change how the coach views you. And these are, you know, kids in their teens, and that's a difficult time anyway, and you want to feel included and a part of the team and the community. Um, but even beyond that, um, if you also were a Christian, uh, it isn't as though all Christians, you know, pray the same way or believe the same types of things like uh, what it misses is that there could be Christians that disagree with a, perhaps a particular theological view that you might pray or whatever. So it isn't just about should it be Christian prayers, but what type of Christian prayers, right? Or getting the Bible into school. Well, um, what version of the Bible? And these are things that Christians can't agree on. And so this idea that we need to um, integrate, quote unquote, Christianity into the civil sphere um, you know, it's been tried and, and Christians can't agree exactly on what should be the, you know, defining factors anyways. And so in that way, I think that's where we have to learn and look to other ways to, you know, allow Americans to be religious or of no religious faith in the public sphere um, without having to resort to one particular faith being privileged. But to be clear, I don't believe such coaches are trying to be manipulative or coercive. However, just because they don't intend to be those things doesn't mean they're not. That's what's so insidious. This attitude of, well, my praising God publicly can only bring blessings to myself and others, so other people's comfort is simply not that important in the grand scheme of things. While we're on the subject of sports, let's take a moment to compare the expressions of Tim Tebow and Colin Kaepernick at games. Saying nothing of whether we actually feel God is concerned with touchdowns, why do many Christians praise Tim Tebow for his on-field praise and excoriate Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee to suggest that our country is not living up to the all-men-created-equal promise? If there are Christians listening who say the situations are different because in the case of Kaepernick, the national anthem is involved, then let me offer another scenario. A common trope among Christian nationalists is that Christians are being persecuted. Imagine that Colin Kaepernick did not exist. Imagine that the country, under some democratic administration and during Tebow's tenure in football, was truly and measurably persecuting Christians. 
To make a statement about this new American climate that is unfavorable to Christians, Tebow decided to take a knee during the national anthem. Would not Christian nationalists hail him as hero even more than they already do? I don't think it's about the national anthem at all. Yeah, this is something that um, my colleague Sam Perry and I wrote a little bit about in our first book um, on Christian nationalism, Taking America Back for God. So we were looking at, you know, these different cultural elements of, of Christian nationalism and how Christian nationalism really is devoted to power. And, you know, looking at the backlash that accompanied Colin Kaepernick, um, we find that Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism are much more likely to um, believe or, or desire or say that people should be forced to show respect to American traditions. And, and so it really underscores this idea that to be a patriot or American, it isn't something that should be given freely, right, because we want to, but it should be demanded. Um, and so this obsession with power and saying this is what you should do and how, that is really key. And so you see some of that with the backlash to Colin Kaepernick from those corners of, of American society. But the other part, and, and obviously, too, this is intertwined with it and very powerful, is the fact that he's black. Um, and there's a, there's a racial element to it where, for many of these folks, again, the ideal American, um, an ideal America is one where white natural-born citizens are held up as the ideal and anybody that isn't um, falling into line and, and paying respect, um, especially if they are racial minorities, um, is viewed as much less American, right? And so it's kind of this backlash towards um, his his racial identity, why he's kneeling, um, and, and feeling as though this is an affront to all of America and American identity to be able to do this, even though for many folks, you know, the the reality and freedom we have to um, protest, which, you know, many of these folks that were upset at Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, really are, <laughs> uh, you know, happy that they can go protest. Some of them might have been at, you know, Tea Party protests, you know, years earlier. Um, and so this racialized aspect to it is, is so key um, and can't be overlooked. Also linked to race is the Christian nationalist's attitude toward refugees, wouldn't Christ have us take the refugees in and not count the cost? To hold another attitude just seems so antithetical to Christ's teachings. I know many Christians send help to the refugees, but stop short of actually receiving them. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be great inconvenience and turmoil around welcoming refugees. Rather, I'm wondering when Christ ever worried about inconvenience or turmoil. Further, what if the refugees were from Sweden and not Syria? Would Christian nationalist attitudes be different? It's largely about race and ethnicity, right? Yeah, that's what we find, you know, even empirically when we when we have these surveys that we give to the American public. Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism are much more likely to hold a variety of views about immigrants or about refugees where they see them as as essentially threats to the United States, um, likelihood of increasing crime, um, holding inferior values, bringing with them, whether it's disease or, or other things. Um, and so you can really clearly see that many Americans, but especially those that embrace Christian nationalism, you know, they 
they draw the boundaries around um, the United States and American identity in such a way that they don't want anyone perceived to be different. And usually it's because of racial and ethnic um, views, right, that uh, they're viewed as just not truly welcome here, um, that that plays such a strong role. And so that is where I think we see clearly the the cultural baggage of Christian nationalism overwhelming um, these Christian values and beliefs that, again, is, you know, in your example, I think it's a great one where, um, you know, Christians that we know who are caring, loving people to us or, you know, those around them. But then when you talk about somebody or a group they might have been defined for them as the other or the outsider, that's where the the lines they won't cross, right? They, we won't extend love and care to them because we fear them, we're afraid of them, they might be coming for our privilege or power, all these different things. Um, and that, I think, is where Christian nationalism really conflicts with and in many ways pushes us in the opposite direction of of expressions of the Christian faith that I think are more aligned with the love and care that you point out that Jesus would have for the marginalized, for those who are hurting, or even throughout history um, that's recorded in the Bible of God demanding his people um, to care for the alien among us, right? And and so all of those things are in there, but the, the cultural baggage of Christian nationalism really overwhelms I think those expressions of the Christian faith um, for coming through as we talk about immigrants or refugees. Say, will you have this Christ or no? And now we come to a really sticky issue. We start with these essentially missionary hymns. What about the Great Commission? A committed Christian is supposed to go ye therefore and teach all nations. The problem, as Kay Norton reminded us in our very first series of episodes, is that missionaries often do harm. Zooming out, it seems like Christ's command to convert all nations has over the ages evolved into a kind of tone-deaf pridefulness. Why would anyone reject Jesus? I mean, Christ died on the cross for our sins. So even if you were raised far removed from Christianity and the Christian culture, it just makes sense that upon the first hearing of the gospel, Jesus is the obvious choice, right? Oh, and by the way, rejecting him will cause you to suffer eternally. Of course, I'm pontificating. So I'd like to redirect you to the authority in these matters. Andrew mentions in his book that he went on mission trips when he was much younger, and there were some cringy moments. What would ethical missionizing look like to him today? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, interesting, important question and one that, um, you know, really deserves a lot of conversation around it because we can't ignore the history of Christianity and, and this religion being intertwined with colonialism, right? This desire for countries to go and take control of other lands and the people that were already there. Um, in order to extract those resources and return them to the home country um, to make, you know, themselves or others wealthy. So that is a a really heinous history. There's so much bloodshed um, and pain because of that. And Christianity was intertwined with that. So when we look at the doctrine of discovery, and this is, you know, in the 1400s and 1500s, a, a papal bull where, Um, The leader of the Western Christian Church is saying, you know, you can go and take control and 
essentially take these lands for God. Um, and so people were baptizing, you know, taking control, killing, enslaving, doing whatever um, to take control of that land because uh, it was for God and for country. And so that history is is real and, and is still with us. And so when we think of missionary work, I think we have to be very attuned to what that means, you know, as we go, is it from this posture that we are obviously correct and they need our help and we're going to go and tell them how they've been wrong and and here's the right way? Um, Or is it a posture of perhaps supporting those fellow Christians who maybe are already there, right? Who Who are the citizens of that place? How can we essentially send resources to them to do the work that they know how to do or want to do or to see as worthwhile. Um, because in many ways, you know, our history and, and the wealth of our country is wrapped in up in us going somewhere and extracting resources. So how perhaps could we um, send resources back to them? And so I think we have to be really careful of inserting ourselves into a different culture um, and then believing that they obviously need us to tell them what to do and how to do it. Um, I think that is what, you know, gets people into a lot of trouble. And I think that's where, you know, as a young person being, you know, quote unquote, on fire for God, um, you know, wanting to do the best that we could for people and to help them in any way. Um, but I think in in some ways it, it could do more harm than good where people, again, see this, these outside folks coming in and just taking control and telling them what to do. I think that's where we have to be really careful. Say, will you have this Christ or no? Switching gears to the more extreme facets of Christian nationalism, I would be remiss to leave out QAnon. Evangelical Christians are some of the first to bemoan any kind of cult And seldom does anything sound as culty as QAnon. Andrew says the research bears this out. Yeah, definitely. Christian nationalism is strongly associated with with a greater likelihood to um, embrace conspiratorial thinking. And when we look specifically at QAnon, more likely to um, hold those views. Um, and, And two, even when as researchers, you know, in one survey we put in um, a a a conspiracy theory that doesn't exist, right? Alongside others that folks have heard from and, and Americans that were more likely to choose the others were more likely to choose that, you know, this one existed as well. And so it just shows that they're more open to anything um, that might be viewed as a conspiracy. And, and so in this way, there's aspects of Christian nationalism where folks are, you know, questioning authority, believing that others are out to get them, um, seeing kind of this persecution wherever they turn. Um, and, and ultimately that allows them to, um, or the result is, you know, an unwillingness really to, uh, you know, hear about any other groups that might be suffering or, or changing the way things work to benefit others. They are able to always see our group, the us, quote unquote, as, you know, really under oppression, uh, persecuted, and that we need to band together and push back however is necessary. Um, and so that's, you know, another element that was strong in January 6th um, and, and obviously has implications for how our democracy functions, um, you know, right now and, and in 2024 and how folks will respond to that election. And many of the Christians who have bought into these conspiracies found their way 
to the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And what a day for that to happen. Epiphany. While Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar were offering gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the infant king, fervent protesters were laying the broken toys of threat, hate, and nationalism at the feet of the Christ they made in their own image. Here's a bit of our conversation. I'd like to talk just a minute about what happened on January 6th. Um, and I just, my, my, my biggest takeaway from it, well, actually, it's, it's a very strange, I went to, my bachelor's is from William Carey College, which I don't know if you know, is a, is a Baptist, a Southern Baptist school in Mississippi. And we, we had some weird activity, one school-wide activity one day where it was like a Sadie Hawkins thing or something very strange. And so basically there were like policemen, quote unquote, and you would be put into like a, a little prison in some classroom or whatever, and they lo- would lock they would lock you in. Well, once I got captured, and all I did was I just opened the window and crawled out, and it was all a big funny game. And so that is what I think about when I think of January sixth. It was the first thing that came to my, my mind. For them, it's just a game. I mean, I know that they believe what they were saying when or, or what they were doing, but at the end of the day, they know that they're not going to be cut down by machine guns for doing it. And if it had been an ethnic group, African-Americans doing it, I think there would have been hundreds of dead people that day. And I, I think it's just, it, I think it really points to white privilege that they, you know, that with all this sort of bravado, they get their guns, they, you know, put on costumes and the, the guy with the horns and, all, and and then they just go, let's just go, uh, you know, march on the, or, attack the Capitol, Mm -hmm. because I think they knew that nothing dire was going to happen to them. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think think that is uh, a way that, too, makes sense to me in viewing it, that, you know, in many ways, they felt very assured that this country is for them and, and is theirs. And so why would they fear any sort of physical harm or retribution? Um, Because, you know they are privileged like this is their country and so and and as you said the the facts of that day in in some ways bear that out where there was very little police presence or you know <laughs> um support you know for order keeping the order uh in that area because um yeah who was in charge on those days and and being able to to make those calls it it really was different where yeah if it had been another group or even as we look at protests or or movements um you know in our nation's capital that that don't look like that group um aren't as you know majority white uh, american citizens um it it looks very different in how the city and and the government responds and so yeah i think in many ways, those that were there, they they felt very assured in in their um, their whiteness and their rightness and their Americanness, uh, protecting them. It isn't something that they necessarily feared at all. Say, will you have this Christ or no? To wrap things up, we have more wisdom from Andrew. First, he explains that even when we don't stipulate white Christian nationalism, the white is implied. 
when we're talking about Christian nationalism, we really are talking about a white Christian nationalism. And so, you know, in the book, I use both terms um, and sometimes just use the shortened one. But in all states, um, that's where that's what I'm referring to, Um, because with white Christian nationalism, the white isn't like the skin color of the person that holds these views. Um, The white is referring to whiteness and the whiteness are the values, beliefs, attitudes um, that allow for and perpetuate one group um, having greater access to the privileges of society than any other. And in American history, that's been white Americans. And so when we're talking about white Christian nationalism, it's a Christian nationalism that perpetuates and benefits whiteness, um, a society that is structured in a way that white people generally do better. And we see this empirically across a number of different categories, um, that it's true that um, white Americans do better across economic health um, criminal justice, you know, all these different factors. And so that's what we're talking about. Um, the white of white Christian nationalism is in support of whiteness. Andrew reports that being exposed to different people who believe differently is a way for a person to re-examine one's worldview. But what about those people who pretty much stay in their hometowns and surround themselves only with others from their churches or cultures? Yeah, it's it's a tough question. I think you know, a part of it, as we think about confronting and opposing Christian nationalism, a part of it is changing the hearts and minds, right? Um, but that is long work, and it takes decades, you know, to have a, a large societal effect. And so when we're talking about communities like the one I grew up in, and, and maybe perhaps um, yours as well, you know, they don't change much. They don't grow or decline much. It's a lot of the same people living in the same place. And so um, that will be more difficult. It isn't impossible, but having enough people in those communities with differing views or to, you know, offer up, um, you know, questions or concerns or, you know, differences of belief, um, that is more difficult. And so in that sense, I think it that will take longer. It'll be tougher. But in a society where more people, you know, are moving and, and changing jobs and changing where they live, um, some of that is going to have an effect. But then I think um, the other more kind of uh, immediate issue is is that Christian nationalism and its association with kind of anti-democratic values, um, you know, really pushes us to, you know, not just focus on trying to change the hearts and minds of people, but to take steps within, you know, the political sphere, social sphere, civil sphere, um, to protect the right of all Americans to live and have access and, and, and um, you know, benefit from, from the many great things of, of our society. And so that, I think, operates even apart from, you know, changing the hearts and minds of those folks, but to actually taking steps to ensure that, um, you know, if if they're going to push to marginalize people, that others show up to say, no, we, we can't we can't marginalize these folks. We need to go a different direction. So I think that's something that we all need to keep in mind is that um, there is an aspect of of the, you know, conversations and interaction one on one. But then we also have to keep in mind that we need to be a part of groups and movements that are focused on, um, you know, the the systems that operate around us and, and making sure that they, you know, work or are changed to work to benefit a, a broader number of people and not just 
you know, a small uh, a portion of American society. With three men around. There is so much more in this book. And the more we understand Christian nationalism, the more we can resist it. The book is entitled American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church by Andrew L. Whitehead. Andrew, I really can't thank you. I mean, this book, as I told you, has just been transformative for me, and I'm I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. So thank you for birthing this into the world, and thank you for talking with me today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the kind words and the, the conversation, and yeah, just really appreciate it very much.